Exodus chapter 3. In this topic, in this sermon, we're going to be looking at is from questions 6 to question 8 of the Westminster Larger Catechism, which very much deals with the topic, the true and living God, that he is one God, and that there's none else like him. And we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 3 to see what we can learn and ask and answer this following question, how is God different from all the other pretenders that are out there. All who would take the name of God, small g, to their name. I remember years ago hearing an argument from atheists concerning the one true and living God. And and atheists will say, famous ones, well, which God are you talking about? Are you talking about Zeus? Or are you talking about, name the false God that you can think of? But one thing that has stood up in my mind is this. They are not in any way like the true and living God. These pretenders to the name of God are made up of parts. Uh, they are a God that can and has been defeated even in mythology. Uh, they are a God in small g that controls certain parts of nature. You'll see it sometimes in Greek mythology. You'll see Zeus is in control of the lightning and you'll see Mars, the god of war. But they're, they're finite gods. They have a beginning and an end. Even though it's based upon mythology, based upon the minds of men. They're not like God. The world and also, when we're looking at these things, the atheist looks at the world, he looks at the world and says, the world has no cause. It's always been as we see it right now. Which we think is, is so strange, don't we, as believers in Jesus Christ. Either it is eternal, this world. And we know it cannot be, because it goes through changes. Uh, these... Uh, Everything around us goes through changes. Or it has a beginning. And if it has a beginning, it has a creator, a maker, someone who has made it. These gods, the atheists will bring up and different things like that, he's yet another creature. He's not the God who's created the heavens and the earth. And ultimately, as many people do in the world, the atheist rejects God as God. They cannot picture and they cannot wrap their minds around God. So they wish to say he is not possible. <coughs> the one who sustains everything around us. The one who is without beginning and without end. Him who is the reason for everything that exists. Everything that exists. The sustainer and keeper of all life. This is the true God that the world Rejects. And this is the true God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. Who is our God? And why does he reveal himself to us? Let us look at this now as we look at Exodus chapter 3. Let us hear God's holy and infallible word. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. 
And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold... The cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I, that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you, that I have sent you, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. When Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am whom I am. And he said, Thus You shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even by a mighty hand, so I will stretch out my hand and and strike Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in its midst. And after that he will let you go, And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty handed. 
Every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothes, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and infallible word. Two weeks ago, in the evening service, we're looking at the light of nature and why we're here. What is the reason we're here? What is it? It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Question one of the catechism that we see from creation is a God. Now, what people do with that information is another thing. The information is clear, but the problem is people distort that information and hold against it and suppress it. Psalm 19 verse 1 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. Actually, in 1650, it says, uh, it, it, it preaches. There's a sense in which it preaches the glory of God. And Romans 1.20 shows that man is without excuse. When he faces creation, the problem is not the information. The problem is with man's heart. And man, in rejection of the one true and living God, the problem is not God. The problem is not a lack of information. The problem is not anything. But himself or herself. The problem is a suppression of the truth in unrighteousness, which Romans 1 also talks about. And we also thought about the artist and the painting. And when you look at a painting, you look at it on the wall, and you, you can learn much about the artist, can't you? You can tell about its skill, you can tell about its talent. But we're limited, aren't we? You know, you look at it and you kind of go, you can tell a lot of things, but you don't know why the painter got up that day and started painting. Maybe he's in a bad mood. Maybe he's in a good mood. Maybe he had his coffee. Maybe he did something else. We're limited in what we can learn from creation in a similar way. But how do we learn if we're looking at a painting? The painter did that. Well, sometimes you have an interview and they'll tell you why they did it. They reveal to you why they did it. They must reveal it to us or else we're not going to know. In a similar way, God must reveal himself to us. Our certain things, how we are to be saved, we will not know. We can look at creation, we can see his wisdom, his goodness, his power, but the gospel is not there. Actually, all that information will just condemn us. The one true and living God. Our minds sadly create idols, false gods. We fo- they're formed in the mind, mind of men. When, when people look at the second commandment, people often get distracted by statues and the products of idolatry. But they are the products of idolatry. The idols are formed in the mind. That's where the sin begins. It's in the imagination of the one who forms them. Then it's formed into a statue or something else. It's in the mind of fallen men. So as we look at this, we're going to look at Exodus chapter 3 this evening. And we're going to look at who this one true God is. Because he's revealed himself. He's revealed himself in this burning bush to Moses. And the first thing we're going to look at is the true God is, what is he? He's without cause. He's without cause. And what's another way of saying without cause? 
He's self-existent. He's self-existent. As in, nothing created God. Nothing caused him to be. Nothing outside of him is needed for God to be God. It says this in, in verses 13, 14, and 15 of our text. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. It's an incredible revealing of God to Moses. I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, he has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. If you remember, at the end of John chapter 8, Jesus said this, Before Abraham was, I am. Now, they knew exactly what he was saying. Why? They picked up stones and they were going to try to kill him. Before Abraham was, Jesus said, I am. He's claiming to be God. The one who is self-existent. That's why they thought it was so blasphemous. They say, look, you, a mere man, saying this. But Jesus could say it because he was true God. He is true God and he is true man. Everything we see around us has a cause. The chairs you're sitting on this evening... They have been made, designed, probably in a factory. Somebody made them, somebody designed them. Uh, the building was designed by somebody. Uh, the roof, everything is designed by somebody and made and built by certain hands. And we know this from nature. A lot of this is maybe, maybe it's very obvious. But sometimes we can forget that with certain things. Every single thing in the world that we can see with our eyes, and even the things that we can't see with our eyes, have a beginning. And because they have a beginning, they have a cause. And because they have a cause, they have a designer and a maker. The clothes we're wearing on our backs, they were made by somebody. I say all this because, sadly, the world looks at the mountains, the valleys, the birds, the bees, and all these things. And they just say, eh, it's always been like that. Well, it's beautiful. Millions of years, you know, they'll, they'll try to explain it by time. But why is it beautiful? Is it just a bunch of random mess thrown together with no, any meaning? How is there any beauty in that? It makes no sense, because it's contrary to everything we see around us. The evidence says, if we see something made with a design, a structure, a purpose, there's been a maker. There's a cause to that. Who's the first cause of all things? God. And he alone is without cause. Nothing caused him to be. He's without beginning and without end. And he gives the name to Moses. I am whom I am. I am. I am self-existent. I never came to be through anything else. I am who I am. God has no explanation of his existence outside of himself. It says this in question 7 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. What is God 
God is a spirit. In and of himself. That's a very important phrase there. God is a spirit in and of himself infinite in being. Notice how it says in and of himself infinite in being, glory, blessedness. No one caused God to be God. No one caused God to be God. As um, in the morning sermon, in the morning service recently, it was it was uh, the the text was First John, chapter one, verse five, and we looked at how God is simple. He does not have parts, and this comes into this part as well of the question. In and of himself, every part of God is God. And and you might think, well, why does that matter? Because we can often forget this. There's no part of God that is not divine, glorious, infinite in power and glory and blessedness. He is who he is. Or, as we said a few weeks ago, all that is in God is God. That's an old phrase that goes back many hundreds of years Now, let's think of this in another way. Many men today will say these kind of things in music, in film, and other things. Do you ever hear the phrase, self-made millionaire? Have you ever seen those people? He's a self-made man. He's, you know, basically what they mean is this. Hard work. Didn't get help from anybody. Um, Just hard work and just kept going. Um, But it's not true, is it? In really any sense. Surely that person has gotten some help somewhere along the line from mere creatures. But even beyond that, God has given them or her anything and everything that they have. The talent to develop and work upon it. The strength to, to work long days, if he works long days. The ability to deal with stress or to deal with other things. And the health. To be able to have what they have at this point in time. Self-made, not at all. We can think that we are self-existent in times. The master of our own destiny. People often have a lot of respect. for You know those people, they're very rich. They've maybe come up with some invention. They're changing the way society is. You know, the, the, the inventors of the world with different things, maybe Apple computers or different things like that. None of us are the masters of our own destiny. God is the master of our destiny. Because when we forget this, we can forget to thank God for little things like the food on our table, the food that we have on our table today. God has brought that into our lives. God has provided for us. Oh, but I have plenty of money in the bank. You know, when things are going well, we can often forget. God has brought this to us. The Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Not our yearly bread, not our monthly bread, our daily bread. Every single day, God brings it to our table. And it's a good thing to teach the next generation, isn't it? To thank God for the food that he brings to the table. To keep thanking God. Because he's the first cause, he's the supreme cause of all things, because he alone, he and he alone is self-existent. Nothing happens without him. Even the bad things in life, nothing 
happens without him. Now there are things that happen in this world that are evil and wrong. Absolutely. But let us not think that these things are outside of the control of God. Even the pagan kings are not outside the control of God. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says this. The king's heart is in, is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Do you see what it's saying there? The king's heart. The ruler's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And there's even examples of this in the scriptures. Cyrus. Long before Cyrus was even born, the book of Isaiah calls Cyrus my shepherd. He's a pagan king. But long before Cyrus was even born, the book of Isaiah writes about him. And he guides Cyrus to allowing God's people, the Jews, to return to the land of Judah to rebuild the temple and do all the other things. Because God is in complete control. He returns them from captivity using these different means. Are we thankful to be in his presence here this evening? Because God has caused all these things. He's the first cause of all things. Again, remind ourselves of what is God. God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being. Glory, blessedness, perfection, all sufficient. We're going to look at that now. All sufficient. So the, tr- the one true God is, he's without cause. Number two now, he's without need. So we talked about the, the self-made millionaire. And people can think because they're rich, or famous, or have influence, that they're free. They're free from any control and they can do whatever they like. But they're not. I'll give you one or two examples. They need food, they need oxygen. <coughs> We need love, we need support, we need encouragement, all of us, all provided by God. God is different. God is different to us mere creatures. God does not depend on anything outside of himself. He's self-sufficient. Look at verses 1 to 3 of Exodus chapter 3. It says this, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire and the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush does not burn? Very strange, isn't it? Why the bush does not burn? Do you notice something about how God reveals himself in the fire? In the wilderness or in the desert, there would sometimes be spontaneous fires. It's very, very hot. It's very, very dry. And sometimes you would see the other fires that would spark up. And, then, and what's the immediate reaction? You see Moses here, he's tending his flock. There's danger to the animals. So this is something that would immediately grab his attention. This would be something impossible to ignore. It's, it's different. What happens when we're burning the fire at home? You, know, you put the logs in. Does, does the log last for hours and hours? No, eventually it just all burns up. And you have to top it up with coal, wood, or whatever else you're putting in there. The fire 
uses up the fuel, doesn't it? And we would love if it didn't, because fuel prices are going up so much these days. But here, the bush is on fire, but it is not consumed. Actually, in Hebrew, the word for consumed, we've got the idea of it is not eaten almost. It's not, fire needs a fuel source, but this fire does not need any fuel source whatsoever. What does it tell us about God? Eventually, our fires at home, they'll burn out. You let them you go to bed, put a fire guard in front of it, and it stops burning. But not our God. He is sufficient in himself. He needs nothing from the world which he has created. And he graciously comes down to us. He owes us nothing. He sustains us all sufficient, as the Catechism tells us. He is all sufficient. And this really comes in from the fact that he is self-existent in and of himself. All that is in God is God. God is a simple being. He's not made up of parts that are God and not God. He is all God. Unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things. The fire will eventually run out of fuel. But our God needs nothing. He is infinite. Does that not make us appreciate it more? Think about it. He gains nothing by our relationship with us even. Our God needs nothing. See, our, our confession of faith says our God is without body, parts, or passions. Put that another way. God does not have parts or passions as in he doesn't suffer need. He doesn't lack anything. And he can't gain anything from us because he's perfectly sufficient in and of himself. He doesn't benefit from us at all. However, he delights in us coming before him in and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that an amazing thing? From all eternity, all sufficient, lacking nothing. If we think of buildings, a couple of years ago, these buildings were renovated and a lot of money was put into them. They need sustaining, renovating. Not our God. He is eternal, glorious. Where do we spend our time? And it makes us think about what do we spend our time on? That which should fade away. And the things of this world will fade away. Or that which is eternal. And sufficient in and of himself. And, and brethren, think about eternity in the presence of him who is the perfection in being. The great reward in heaven is not just that we avoid hell. The great reward in heaven is God in his perfections and his glory and to enjoy him forever. The one true God is he's without cause, he's without need, he's without blemish. Without blemish, verses 4 to 6 says this. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. 
And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now what can we learn from this passage? In this segment, what is the significance of verse 5? And it says, Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Now, we view very very rarely wear sandals here when it's not hot enough, is it? But it's a very common custom of the day, even to this day in the East. It's a kind of a, a mark of respect. Actually, I remember growing up and my parents, my mother especially, would always make me take my shoes off at the door. Just out of respect. You were, you're not dragging through mud or whatever through the, the clean floor in the kitchen. So what, let us think about this a little more. What condition would a, would a shepherd's sandals be in the middle of the desert? Would they be clean? Not at all. And they're to be taken off. Clean, probably filthy from the desert. And in coming into the presence of God, it is a place of holiness, a place of cleanness. It's a picture, isn't it? It's a picture to teach. Uh, this is not anything to do with physical dirt per se, but more of a picture of moral filth which we all carry around with us as we walk through this world. We will all pick up things on our feet as we walk from leaving spiritual Babylon on our way to the celestial city to, in that, to, toward that place of perfect cleanliness, the per- place of perfect holiness. He alone is holy, and only those clean in his eyes can come into his presence. You see this? You want to come into my presence, Moses? This place is holy. Holy. Now this was seen as a picture with the Levitical priesthood as well. And you'll notice with a lot of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of Moses, there's a picture, and there's pictures of the gospel all over the books of Moses, uh, from Genesis to Deuteronomy. And we see a picture of those who are to come before God. We see the Levitical priesthood. It says in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 8 to 11. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 8 to 11. Then the Lord said to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. That you may distinguish between the holy and unholy. Between unclean and clean. That you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. By the hand of Moses. So this wasn't just for them. This was also so they could teach. They could see by example. And teachers, really, and the living of priests were teachers. They were, they, were to, they were part of the sacrificial system, but they were also to teach the people. And they were to teach by example. Sadly, I think we've lost that sense of teaching by example today. As we come before this pure, holy, and righteous being, a holy God, 
There can be much casualness as we come into the presence of Almighty God. Even as it talks to the, the Levitical priesthood saying to Aaron, do not drink wine or intoxicating drink. Now this is not talking about teetotalers forever or anything like this. But there's a sobriety, you could say, in coming before the presence of God. They're going in before God. And when they're going in before God, it must be distinguishing the holy and the unholy. We're coming into a sacred place, a place of holiness. And we should think about preparing ourselves for worship. When we come towards the Sabbath day, there should be a preparation in our hearts for the Sabbath. Now that will, that will look different to every person. It may be, maybe you read a little bit more of your Bible on Saturday evening or something like that. But think about the oven that is not preheated before you put something in there. It's slow to warm up. Should we not prepare our hearts for the Sabbath day? We too need to take off our sandals, not physical ones, but spiritual ones, as we enter into the presence of Almighty God. And we all have things. When we walk through this world, we pick up things in our feet. There's dust, there's dirt, there's things we've learned from the world. There's things we've thought that we've been influenced by, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we need to remove this. How do we remove this? Well, asking God for forgiveness. He's faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We, we saw that this morning in our text in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Asking God, God removes this. We don't remove it at all. And one cried to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah 6, 3. But none of us are truly holy enough to enter into, the, into, into his presence except for the righteousness of Christ. In Revelation 7, verse 9. And these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, and peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. How? Clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. What were they wearing? White robes. And in white robes, you see the imperfections. I'm always afraid of wearing white whenever my wife makes spaghetti bolognese or anything like that. Because, and you think, oh, that red sauce is just attracted to that white shirt. No, it just shows up more, doesn't it? The perfection is so easy to see in whiteness. And how are we going to have those white robes by faith in Jesus Christ? He clothes us. He clothes, he washes us as well. Our God is so wonderful. We need washing and cleansing before we can come before him at all. So he's without cause. He's without need. He's without blemish. And finally, number four, he is without equal. Moses sees this. He's without equal, verse 6. And the second half of verse 6, it says, And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. He knows how great this God is. And he's afraid to look upon God. God, because he's without equal. We ought to fear him. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of 
Wisdom. Wisdom. And the fear of the Lord cannot be a heart consumed with self. All the other gods, small g, are products of men's brains. All of them. If you look at it, just it's amazing. They're all pretenders. They're not like this true, living, and eternal God. We actually, we sung earlier there in Psalm 115, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Uh, their idols are silver and gold, the works of men's hands. And look how ridiculous they are, it says in Psalm 115. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes have they, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Another way of saying it, they're absolutely useless. They can't help you in times of trouble. They can't hear you. But this is what idols are. The products of men's brains, we worship them. And what happens? In times of trouble, they're of no good. Feet have they, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. It's a scary verse. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. What does that mean? Everyone who trusts in something that is what? Dead. Is what? Dead. Fallen men's heart naturally produces these things. Silver and gold, very impressive. Work of men's hands. Oh, wow. And that they'd be given these titles of God, but they're absolutely, they can do nothing. They can do nothing. Question 8 of the Westminster Larger Catechism says this, For there are there more gods than one? Now this may seem like a very obvious answer. But we, let us look at this a bit more. There is but one only, the true, the living and true God. One only. This may seem very obvious, but do we believe it? That there's no other God. Now, how would we know this? Who's our God? Where do we spend our time? What do we prioritize? Where's our responsibilities? If, if God is the, the one true and living God, does he come first, second, third, fourth? Maybe at the end of the week when there's a little bit of time. If there's only one true and living God, does church become a small part of the life or a major part? Is he central? Why, why is he central? Because he's without equal. Nothing else comes close. Nothing else comes close. And actually, it's only when you see how God, great God is, you actually see everything else for what it is. This is what, this is what happened to Solomon at the end of his life. Solomon writes the book of Ecclesiastes, and he says, at the end of his life, having, having sampled the best that the world could offer, all the riches, and what does he say? Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. It's just a puff of smoke. It's fleeting. It goes with anything, whether it be fame, whether it be influence, whether it be money. Solomon was famous. Everyone wanted to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And he sees in the end of his life what it is in comparison with the eternal truths of God. 
God is glorious. It says in Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. We've got to make sure we don't think of carved images as just something of an artist. The carved images begin in the mind of fallen men, and then they're produced. Then they're produced. What shapes our lives without that which was without equal or that which we want to serve? You see, idols are things we like to serve. We, we pick the attributes of the, the small g God that we like to produce and we go, oh, I'd like to serve that person. God is without equal, glorious, infinite, powerful, worthy of all the praise, all the honor, all the glory. And the time we spend with him shows him what he's worth. It's like any relationship. Any relationship, anything that is worth is worth something to us, is worth our time, it is worth our affections, and it is worth every ounce of effort. It depends on how much we value these things. If we value our family, we're going to spend a lot of time with our family. If we value our job, we're going to spend a lot of time in our job. Do we value our God? The one true and living God. See, intellectually we may think, oh, yes, of course he's the only true God. But in a lived out, experiential sense, in what way can we, as believers, grow in this area so that we can express that he is the one true and living God in our own lives. Amen.